Hello, and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developer's podcast in fantabulous Chelsea. Your regular host, Michael Nunez, is in fantabulous Hawaii, so I'll be filling in. Oh man, I'm so jealous. <laughs> I'm your host, Dave Anderson, and the panelists today, we have a producer. William Jeffries. And a very special guest today. Kevin Thomas. Today, we're going to be talking about semantic versioning, when you should do it, when you shouldn't do it, and what the heck it is. Always do it. <laughs> Except even when you don't have to. But yeah, so... Yeah, what, I'm not, what I'm not is... simvering my, my side projects. That's <laughs> a waste of time. So what is semantic versioning? Do a short explanation we could give for someone who has never heard the topic before. It's a way to use a small set of integers to like determine, let's say, like people, people talk about like web 1.0 versus web 2.0. It's like very, very loosely. But this is like a more rigorous system where the first number is like the big breaking changes, ideally. The second mm -hmm. version is like when you add new features. The third one is like small patches. Sometimes there's a fourth one just for security fixes. So if there's a, the third number changes from like 200 to 201, you're not that worried about the changes. But if it changes to from 200 to 210, you'd be a little worried. And if it's 200 to 300, then like anything could break, the APIs could break. And right. like you'd, be, you'd be worried your entire app would fall apart. They can't be held accountable. And there's, there's more information on this at semver.org. Yeah, which itself is semantically versioned. It's and currently at Semver 2.0. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And we can only imagine what the breaking changes were between Semver version <laughs> 1.0 and Semver version 2.0. Exactly. It had to have been a big deal. I would like to look at the Git diff. They have a, a Git repo for that. Yeah, but I, I there are like a lot of good examples of, of semantic versioning out there in the wild. Like one that comes immediately to mind to me for semantic versioning and the pain that it can bring is the huge breaking changes that were introduced in Python 3.0 from Python 2.7. Oh yeah, where, there was like a huge schism in the community over that, right? Yeah, yeah. The I think the big the biggest thing that broke a lot of libraries was changing how strings were handled, bytes and Unicode and all that fun stuff. And it was it was a lot of right decisions were made. But basically, we have two languages that we're, we're dealing with and slowly kind of trying to fold everybody back in. Do you think that folding back in is really going to happen in the next year or so as they officially sunset 2.x? 2020. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new 2012. <laughs> have people been coming up with upgrade scripts? I feel like that's the key to getting people to adopt the new major version is making the upgrade path as easy as possible. Yeah, unfortunately, I think they didn't really think too much about that. They thought about like what the important things were that they needed to do, and they decided to do them. And they didn't really think about like the human aspects of upgrading software, which which kind of led to where we are today. There is one right way to do it. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I yeah. remember I remember reading an article in like 2013. So Python three had been out for five years, and adoption was like well below twenty percent. My biggest suspicion for why adoption was really low is because like the Python community doesn't write a lot of tests. If you don't have a lot of tests, like if you're gonna break everything, how how can you know if you fixed it again? Maybe this will be an incentive for the Python community to get more into testing. Yeah, I I think so. I think there's a new generation of people who are coming from 
other languages and pollinating Python with good ideas. Like Kevin, I really like the idea that, or the example that you had told me earlier about Ruby. Yeah, I, I thought like Ruby learned from Python's mistake in a way. This is just a suspicion. Like no one, no one officially has said this that I know of, but it seemed like most of the breaking changes going from Ruby one one point like one point X to to two point Most of the breaking changes were actually like snuck in in Ruby one point nine. Like they handled, they changed the way that string like character strings like if you index into a string, it became just a, a shorter string instead of a, a an integer character. And it's like they deprecated some old ways that you could put pass in dictionaries. 2.0 had comparatively few changes. And then for 2.1, they had more changes again, but they were the changes that like people really wanted to revamp the language. Right. So they, they held the carrot out in front. Yeah. It seemed like the, the fact that they were not on Simver before 2.0 was an advantage that allowed them to make the upgrade to 2.0 less scary. And then oh. a big part of upgrading to 2.0 was adopting Semver. Interesting. So the breaking change was doing Semver itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Semver does communicate clearly, but that can still be very scary to the developers. And you still need a path to upgrade. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been thinking about it a lot, considering like we've been working more in the JavaScript area. At least I've, I've been working more in the JavaScript area. Kevin, I think you've, you've been working on the JavaScript quite a bit over the past couple of years. But like, there's a lot of major releases in, in JavaScript libraries that you have to keep up with, and yeah, you know, things break and change really fast. We're about to get on React 16, and once the major versions jump that fast, like it's unclear where the breaking changes are at all. So you kind of lose the meaningfulness of semantic versioning over again. Yeah, although like it, it is helpful when libraries include deprecation warnings. Like Rails is really good about this, like just warning you continuously whenever you run your test suite that there's something that's deprecated that you're using or you know, React has been good about that too. Deprecation warnings, I think, are really crucial for making upgrading easy because things are deprecated beforehand and you have a while to go through and fix all of the problems. It also puts the developers of the library in the mindset of coming up with clear error messages to give people that make it easy to figure out how to fix the problem. Yeah, I, I agree. It is it is nice when there's like a clear explanation that what that means and maybe even like a reference to some change request that I can go and read about it more. Yeah, a lot of times the deprecation warnings are mostly an explanation of how to upgrade. Sometimes those warnings are really annoying, but like one advantage of being on a big team is gonna sign just like one guy to like go up and clean and clean that stuff up. Yeah, you know, get, get ready just, for the future. Just gotta be a good Boy Scout. Leave it better than you found it. And let's see. I, I really duty. think that the semantic versioning is grease necessary for the open source community to like keep marching forward, library by library, because each one, each one has to be maintained in its in its own way. And as scary as the major version changes can be, the alternative can be even worse. Like I remember when a lot of the world switched from underscore JS to lodash JS that kind of had the same goals with slightly different implementation. Like beyond Lodash having better performance, like one of the big reasons was the creator of underscore JS, Jeremy Ashkenaz, just refused to do semantic versioning. He put breaking changes into random patch versions and maybe not patch versions, but probably like the the medium versions. Mm-hmm. And when he was asked about that by the community, like when there was a little bit of an uproar, he just like shouted them all down. He just wanted to do it his own way. Interesting. So it doesn't it doesn't have to be strict semantic versioning, but you need something similar in order for the community to like feel like you're communicating in a clear way. Right, yeah. 
Yeah. It all comes back to like the human factor of like, you know, making sure that people can trust you and the service that you're providing, like be it a library or, I mean, we haven't talked about this very much, but like REST APIs also benefit from semantic versioning. Although that's like a topic in itself, like how you can do that really well. It's, it's definitely a lot easier to package up and release a library than if it's truly for public consumption. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Do you guys do semantic versioning for your own private projects? No, I think also like if you have an app that no other developer is going to use, it doesn't really seem super necessary. Like, yeah, that's more of like a a package thing to me. Yeah, and even even for like you know the web app that you're developing, that's gonna save the world. Like you may not need a semantic version since you're always gonna just gonna be fixing forward and. You know, if you need to report on what version of software is breaking in your error log, then you can just use the the hash from the git commit. Although I think APIs could be an exception to that. Like if you're if you have a microservice architecture and there are a bunch of APIs that are servicing your app, then those APIs probably should be should be under Semver. Yeah, especially if you're going to have clients out in the wild that you don't have control over like mobile because there's no guarantee that that guy who's running Android 2.1 is ever going to upgrade his application or his phone. Yeah. And if you are a dedicated team running an API service that another dedicated team has to consume, you essentially have public customers just like a regular library maintainer does or a SaaS platform with an API does. Yeah, that's true. I feel like the mobile app environment is actually really good about semantic versioning overall. I think it's because it's so curated by Apple and slightly curated by Google at times. Right. Like you have to get your your app approved and on their store. So I've never done that myself, but I'm, I'm sure there are very clear guidelines, especially for Apple on how to do that. But it seems less necessary because it's easier for most apps just to like keep upgrading forward automatically. Mm, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, the plain old fashioned e commerce website. Not gonna need Semper. And there there's sometimes when like things feel stale because it's stuck in an old version. Certainly that was the case with like Python two lasting a decade longer than anyone expected. But also like Angular one just felt it really felt like a one using it almost ten years after it was created. Right, yeah. Everyone's on React fifteen and <laughs> they're still using Angular one. Although it was like it was, you know, one point whatever in the end. Like it 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 did seem like it was it was a better step for the community, like a better like PR move to start releasing a major version twice a year. And Angular two did make some good changes, like they did away with some of the two way data binding and made made that simpler. But still there's a lot of complexity packed into it. So I think it wasn't as well received as some other like modern upgrades of things. Yeah, I think it's better to have major version upgrades that break relatively few things relatively often rather than to have major version upgrades very infrequently that are massively different. It's yeah. just it gets back to that idea of the upgrade path and how right. hard that is for people to follow. Yeah. And the, <laughs> the marketing for the major versions matters a lot more. Right. I mean, I guess like if you're talking about infrequent infrequent major upgrade versions like java 9 just dropped a couple of weeks back and like who knows when enterprise java adopters will, will ever like really jump on that excited about java 9 
<laughs> I'm not really terribly excited about Java anything. They have, they have a REPL. We'll be a little bit closer to being a real modern language. <laughs> <laughs> but it still can't parse JSON out of the box. Oh, well. Soon, Java 10. Wait for it. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> have you guys looked at the Swiss train deployment that Ember has been doing? What is that? This has been going on for a while. It's super cool. They have three different channels, essentially. So the first channel is Canary. And the way that works is it's essentially master. And it has absolutely all of the cutting edge features that people might want to alpha test. But it is understandably unstable. And so the only people who subscribe to that are people who want to help with the testing and people who really want to know what is coming out next. So you might use it for a side project, but you definitely wouldn't use it in production. So then after the Canary release comes the beta release. And all of these come out every six weeks, by the way. And that is more stable, but it has newer features in it. And then six weeks after that comes the release build. And the release build is guaranteed to to work and you can put that in production safely and that that will be semantically versioned according to whatever the impact is yeah yeah they use semantic versioning and what's nice about that is it's a great way to solicit feedback from the community which leads to gentler upgrade paths and you can automate it all Chrome has a similar canary system, right? Where like they allow users to like use the bleeding edge and po- poke the tires. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chrome Canary, like a lot of fun. The versions go up really, really fast, so it becomes a little less meaningful. But I think it's still like one of the healthiest, the healthiest C plus plus project I can think of in the open source world. Chromium. Yeah, their docs for contribution are very thick, very intense docs. <laughs> Impressive though. Yeah, it it definitely is. Yeah, what version of Chrome are we on right now? Is it is it what sixty sixty one? Just burning through it, We're competing with Firefox directly. <laughs> yeah, it's like iPhone, also not quite semantically versioned anymore. Skipping the ninth release, and I guess everyone kind of does that when they get to ten. They're like kind of very, very, very excited. excited. Yeah, <laughs> Windows skipped Windows nine as well. Yeah, similar marketing reasons. I think that we ought to start just giving giving releases fun names for marketing purposes and then leave the major version number as just actually a technical <laughs> detail. Right, like how Android does it. Yeah, exactly. But I guess that's technically semantically versioned as well because like, they, they do have the major release and minor release and, and they'll just come up with a marketing name for each release that they decide they need to market. I guess is every minor and major release. And the the Apple OS, Mac OS, is still on version 10, about 10 years later, right? <laughs> Technically. <laughs> well, like, what is it? Uh, High Sierra? OS X, right? It's still 10. Oh, okay. It's stuck to that number. <laughs> I actually don't know very much about the Mac versions of the operating system. Actually, <laughs> I'm curious. How does, how does that work with, with Mac OS? Someone can uh, educate me. I know that they have some some pretty sweet names where... <laughs> It used to be all fun cat names, and now it's mountains. Yeah, although I'm like less amped about upgrading from Sierra to High Sierra. Like it seems like it's only an incremental upgrade. Like because it's just an adjective. Yeah, exactly. It's like big, bigger Sierra. 
I mean, I think that's what they're going for since it's not a product that they sell in the first place. <laughs> True. But I guess OS X was like their biggest breaking change of all time since they're switching to Intel architecture from like Mac OS 8 and 9. That's true. I guess like there is a guarantee that your your new High Sierra should work with whatever you're you're running right now, whatever hardware you have from them. Although I have heard problems with Puma and some other things on on High Sierra, so like there's some pain being on the bleeding edge for sure. Puma's a program for just serving web apps, right? Locally, yeah, for for serving your Ruby on Rails applications. Has anybody worked on a project that automatically upgrades? Oh, for dependency management? Yeah, because it's really good for security. Also just good in general for the health of the project. Because people don't really remember to upgrade all of their packages. Yeah, like it, 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 it does happen that eventually you realize that you have all of these breaking changes and you're very far behind. And if you have tests, then that's great. You You have a hand up and doing that upgrade but if you don't then that's a pretty scary process yeah and if you wait a whole year to do it or even six months then you'll have a whole lot of breaking changes to go through whereas if it's a thing that runs on a nightly build then when you come in in the morning you know there's just a ticket waiting for you because the build failed and had to roll back or there's nothing waiting for you because everything upgraded just fine yeah, I, I really like that that philosophy of just automating away the pain, like because it it really is like it it's not a fun thing. It's a chore. To, if it hurts, to do, do it upgrade. more, right? Isn't that an agile tenant? I was able to do that on a Node project because we had a small audience and like we kind of built it ourselves in the beginning. So we actually had for Node, it had a smaller number of dependencies than it might have, and things kind of just kept forward, and that that part worked fine. We had more problems with trying to get the right build packs from Heroku and like their like their setup than we did with the actual oh because packages. Heroku was actually running behind the the curve a bit. Yeah, like that would determine like the overall node version, but individual packages could could move forward and had no problem. Nice. Cool. Do we have any teach and learns today? Yeah, I started taking a deep learning class on Coursera, the one from Stanford with Andrew Wen. Pretty excited about it. I also went to PyGotham last weekend, and there were a number of good talks from people who are doing cool things with the neural networks. So I'm I'm excited to have an excuse to play around with that a bit more. Oh, I'm jealous. I went to PyGotham, but I sat at a table the whole time and handed out materials. Oh, to all the lovely people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got to talk to a lot of fun Pythonistas. <laughs> Do you feel like you have enough to actually build something, Dave? Well, I just I just finished the intro videos. <laughs> Those were pretty great. I feel like I, I have a lot of good context about the state of the art and where we came from and how we're getting there. But yeah, th- there's a lot of toolkits out there that you can use. I think I know enough to be dangerous. Love that. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you guys for being here today, Kevin. It's a pleasure having you today. Thanks a lot. William, always excellent. It was a pleasure to be here. And thank you guys for listening to The Rabbit Hole. Hit us up on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit. We'll catch you guys next time.